All right, folks, welcome. This is Mark Steiner. We're about to have a conversation uh, with our guests right now about the leaks, WikiLeaks expose of CIA documents. What do they really mean? Uh, how much was really revealed about the CIA? Uh, what technically did it say? And also, what does it say about our privacy in general? And we are joined here once again by Jenna McLaughlin, who is a national security reporter at The Intercept. Jenna, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thanks so much. And Sean Gallagher, the IT editor at Ars Technica. And Sean, welcome. Good to have you back with us, man. Great to be here. So let's just start from the top here. And I'll start with you, Jen, and then go to Sean. I mean, so just, just uh, what, what was really revealed here, do you think, that was so th- of, of import? Sure. So I think not too much of this was all too surprising for the people that have been kind of following this area and know about what the general capabilities of a place like the CIA would be. Um, But I think the most things that were revealed were capabilities to hack into cell phones um, in particular and a few other separate kind of niche abilities. Uh, And so I'm going to say, because I was reading your piece as well, Sean, it it seemed like uh, you didn't think there was a great deal here that should shock the CIA or shock anybody else? No, not really. I mean, we already knew that a lot of stuff was going on, and the focus of what the CIA's uh, internal team were doing were on tools to be used by CIA assets, and we already had some sort of an idea of how those sorts of things worked. Um, Most of what has been revealed is their work product, essentially, which shows, shows the the workflow and the testing and things like that that they do to, to produce the material, to produce the, the exploits and malware that they send out into the field. So uh, mostly it's damaging to CIA's work process, but I don't think that there's anything new here in terms of magical exploits or anything like that that we weren't aware of. I, I joked with somebody that this was really a breach of the CIA's notes that it took at DEF CON. <laughs> Because, <laughs> you know, Jenna, I was thinking about that because um, when this first happened, the reports, whether they were NBC, ABC, NPR, all the reports seemed to come out and talk about this gigantic breach that that, uh, uh, that, that damaged the CIA's ability, security ability and what they do around the world. And that, that, was, that was the tenor and has really been in some ways the tenor of a lot of the major media discussions. Well, right, it is I, a large but, uh, breach. I'm oh, sorry, sorry I thought you said Jenna. <laughs> Go ahead. No, go ahead, Jenna. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it was a large breach. Like Sean said, it was, you know, 8,000 plus documents. Um, but the idea that it's all that shocking or completely destructive is, I think, still to be determined. I mean, because the very specifics of these capabilities are laid out, um, some of those might no longer be usable. Uh, but there are certainly others that are within the the dump that are public, made public already, and probably are already not usable. Sean, go ahead. Yeah, there are a number of exploits that were in there that addressed problems that systems had that have long been patched. But also uh, the bigger threat from a lot of these things is that for those that haven't been patched is that while the code for these hasn't been shared yet by WikiLeaks, the documentation on how to use them could be used by other people to get a sort of head start on figuring out where to go with their own attacks. That's, I think, that I think is the biggest threat to privacy in general is that people could take the information and the documentation on these and use that as sort of seed for building their own. 
how do you pick up on that, gentlemen? Is, is is that real? Can people sure, do absolutely. I mean, people can absolutely do that. There are plenty of skilled, talented hackers out there who probably already thought of at least similar ways to do this types of stuff, and they absolutely rely on each other for various different types of research. So one of the things I thought about, and I, and I, and, and Sean, let me start with you on this one, because I, and, and I know that uh, you come out of the intelligence world back in your day, back in the day. Um, Way, way back. Way, way back. <laughs> but still there. So um, th- that um, if, if the CIA is doing this, you can assume that the NSA is doing it. You can assume that other parts of the DIA are, are, are doing it, that, that, that the intelligence establishment in general has this information. They can hack into things. I mean, wouldn't that be an assumption you'd make? Yeah, and the FBI has this capability, and contractors that all these agencies use have this capability. I mean, everybody's got their own angle here, right? So the CIA is is focused mostly on giving its human assets the ability to get information back to the CIA by breaking into networks where people are physically located and using that to get to places that, say, the NSA or other agencies can't get to over the Internet or through other means. Uh, the NSA is focused on network exploits. The DIA may be more focused on signals intelligence in the field or dealing with defense systems. The FBI is focused on breaking into systems where they think criminals are doing things, uh, like the child pornography rings they've been breaking up with by using exploits on the Tor network, the anonymizing network called Tor. Um, so everybody's got these capabilities in some form, and a lot of these come from the outside world, in fact, you know, a lot of these guys just copy and paste code they found in other people's malware and put into theirs to make it to make their jobs easier. So a lot of these things are based on things that have happened elsewhere. Other countries are doing the same thing. I'm just breaking today on Wednesday, we've got this story about uh, the FSB, the Russian security agency, uh, using criminal hackers to break into Yahoo to target government to both target both Russian and American government officials, uh, a Russian bank, and uh, and various other people. So they, they get this stuff from lots of places, and often they go to the criminal side to get some of it as well, and the criminal side uses a lot of what they use because there's such a gray line between a lot of these organizations. I mean, and I guess it, it would, there's a lot of things here, Jenna. I mean, should give us some pause about who may be watching us for what reason. Sure. And I mean, these different agencies, like Sean mentioned, have specific uh, ideas in mind for why they want to use these tools. And, you know, the CIA's ability to hack into a Samsung TV when they need physical access to it is probably not something that the average American should be concerned about. Um, I mean, we didn't even get into the NSA, who are the exploit kings of all of this, um, who, you know, use these capabilities, uh, like are mentioned in the documents uh, for spying overseas and collecting foreign intelligence. Um, so certainly the capabilities are there, but they are expensive sometimes. They can be lost, as we've noticed in the hack itself. And a lot of these techniques are very targeted. Um, they're not necessarily used for mass surveillance, which I think is important to remember. Not mass surveillance, but I, mean, I, th- I think that there are a couple of things here. One of the things that you wrote about, Jenna, was, uh, was um, the ability now to, to kind of circumvent encryption devices on phones if they go after a phone individually? Well, sure. I I think that there were some misleading reports actually about that as well. The idea that these 
apps um, like Signal, like WhatsApp, things like that, that, um, you know, somehow the the CIA hacked into that or something. And in reality, anybody can bypass the protections that those applications provide if you hack into the phone itself, um, if you if you get to the endpoint. And that's just something that's always been true. Sean, do you want to jump into that at all before we... No, I think that she hit it all there. I mean, we, we've we've looked at a lot of these schemes in the past. I mean, the main the main thing that individual individuals have to worry about long term in terms of surveillance is not that the CIA is going to break in their house and, and turn their television into a bug. That's not what most people need to worry about. <laughs> what you have to worry about is that you know in your communications with people, whether it be with people overseas or even with people in the United States, if your communication gets routed through someplace outside the U.S. borders, that your information is going to be intercepted by somebody or that you may be dealing with someone who's been able to exploit one of these things, one of these one of these uh, bugs in a system that either you or someone you're talking with is using and get access to what you're talking about. And, and you really have to think about what your threat model is in that case. I mean, most people don't have to worry about being targeted for that sort of thing, but there are a lot of low-hanging fruit in terms of uh, in terms of exploits that can be used on people on a daily basis to get financial information, to get travel information, to target people for other sorts of things uh, that for criminal purposes that I think is a bigger threat than uh, a government using the information against you for most people. Now, there are certainly activists and, uh, and, and dissidents around the world and people of different political parties they should be more concerned, and journalists, I especially, am concerned about what sort of surveillance is going on in my daily life because I talk with people in different places about different things. I'm getting things sent to me over encrypted communications, and I'm sure that, you know, uh, I don't know if I've got a target on my back on a daily basis, but I'm pretty sure that you know, not just the U.S. government, all governments are interested in what journalists are talking to people about and around these topics and around national security and other issues that have an impact on relationships between them. And I think that uh, even for the most part, you know, everyday life isn't, you don't have to worry about this sort of stuff in everyday life, but wherever your life crosses paths with issues like these, you certainly have to take them into account. So Jen, do you have the same similar concerns? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, especially working where I work and uh, having written about classified documents and being in contact with various sources all the time through, you know, these encrypted methods of communication, which honestly, sometimes the fact that encryption is being used is a red flag for some government agencies on its face. Um, I would 100% say that um, if at, at least some governments, if not most, are targeting my communications. Um, and and like Sean said, you know, that's a specific concern for journalists and activists um, that we need to think about that maybe the average person doesn't have to. So, so I guess, Jen, I mean, so, so then Donald Trump is not the only person worried about being hacked. No, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, no, he is not. No, I, I mean. Sorry, I just couldn't resist. No, it is. So, you know, we don't know that he, if he, if he hasn't been hacked already, as we know, he carries around. We, we've had this conversation before, Mark. He carries around that phone with him everywhere. That's a phone that, you know, based on information we have, is is vulnerable to being exploited by somebody if they just send him the right email or send him send him a message that downloads an application to his phone. 
they could be using that phone as a bug, right? So mm-hmm. there's a lot, but I don't think anybody turned his microwave into a camera. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but other people at the Intercept talking about turning microwaves into cameras have written about um, uh, the, the WikiLeaks dump kind of showing that you could turn smart TVs into listening devices. I think one of your one of your compatriots wrote about Jenna. I mean, so I mean, so what is it that we that that maybe as a as um, a population? I mean, not the two of you, but what is it we kind of what revelations came out? Do you think people understand or need to understand from what came out of these documents? So for me, I think that the takeaway there, which is a much broader one, is that a lot of these smart devices that we've been rolling out full steam ahead are just incredibly insecure. Um, they have very few protections built in. Um, whether it's a really fancy hack like this where you need access to the physical device or you can p- perform a distributed denial of service attack like the Miri botnet um, taking what, and what control is that? What of that? What is that you just mentioned? Oh, sorry. It's... Um, a DDoS attack is what it's referred to. The uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, webcams, home the devices. I forget uh-huh. which smart devices. They were kind of uh, captured in this botnet and basically directed by malicious hackers to flood certain websites with traffic, um, taking down sites for various amounts of time. Um, so, so these kinds of devices that are unsecured can be used for other malicious purposes as well. So, I mean, yeah, so go ahead, Sean, for sorry. example, your home Wi-Fi router is is an example of something that could be targeted by people to turn it into something to do evil. Uh, it's, the whole thing is what we call the Internet of Things. Uh, it's it's become a bigger and bigger concern. As as she mentioned, you know, there was this thing, the Mirai botnet, that took over DVRs and digital cameras that were on the Internet that you know, people had just installed and they were directly accessible over the web and along came this malware that installed itself on them and then spread itself across all of them automatically over a period of time just by seeking other systems like those. And then it turned itself on, first on uh, security reporter Brian Krebs' website, uh, and then on uh, the, Dyn- the Dyn Dynamic uh, Domain Name Service provider and a few other websites as well, uh, took them right offline. And, and in the process of taking down Dyn, they took down a number of websites in the East Coast of the United States because they made it made them inaccessible from people's computers and phones. And that's just one example of what the Internet of Things can be turned towards. Uh, there was a group called uh, Lizard Squad that uh, turned route, uh, routers, Wi-Fi routers, into an attack platform for going after websites a few years ago. And there have been a number of recent exploits of, of home Wi-Fi routers that could be used for similar things. And the problem with these things is that you know people don't really think about updating their Wi-Fi router every day. You hear from, you constantly hear on television, update your passwords and make sure you have most top, most recent update of your phone operating system, your or your computer operating system. But nobody ever mentions your Wi-Fi router operating system. Right. And right. So that's the most vulnerable piece of hardware in your house. Uh, and everything that connects to it that also communicates with the Internet. Uh, you know, we've seen examples of things like uh, <clears throat> there was a, 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 a Mattel toy, a Barbie, that kids could talk to, and it communicated with the cloud. And it was demonstrated that could be turned into a listening device with just a little bit of code. And there were some other things <clears throat> similar to that that don't you – know, there were some talking toys and things like that that have interface to the Internet that – under the right circumstances, somebody could simply 
connect to the Wi-Fi in them and use them to listen in on your home. Baby monitors and things like that that are connected to the Internet through your home network that may, you know, may, you know they're supposed to allow you to, like, you know, when you're out on the town, look at your smartphone and see what's going on in your home or check in on your kids. Well, everybody else can check in on your kids, too, if they're not properly secured. So huh. those are the sorts of things that are the biggest threat out there. I'm less concerned about uh, things like uh, somebody hacking into my computer on a daily basis and more concerned about, well, did somebody find an exploit for the uh, for my cable box or my smart TV that would allow them to 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 turn it into something to observe me, especially if it's something like, for example, if I use voice commands, a lot of these devices that use voice commands, like, uh, uh, for example, the uh, uh, Amazon uh, Alexa service, right? So those devices, you, you're constantly talking to them. There's a case right now where the uh, where there was a warrant served to Amazon to turn over any audio data that was recorded by an Amazon Echo uh, in a murder case. And it's possible that the murder was picked up by the Amazon Alexa service. So these are all things that are connected to the Internet we don't think about. They're not things that we have a usual interface to. We don't have a keyboard or a, or a, or a touch screen to get to these things. But they're all talking to the Internet all the time. and. Right. They're gathering a wealth of information about our lives that we don't really think about that much. So, you know, when when you when you think about this, Jenna, and on the heels of what uh, Sean Gallagher just said, um, that when WikiLeaks rolled out CIA MI5 and, and, and showed us the surveillance tools that they have that most people weren't thinking about, were aware of. And so if, you know, if people can kind of spy on us through our smart TVs, cars, cell phones, whatever, then when FBI Director James Comey says... Americans should not have any expectations of absolute privacy, and that's very real, isn't it? I mean, this is this is this is the frontier in which we live in at the moment. Well, sure. I mean, as soon as we start talking about the broadness of the internet, um, the privacy factor is there. You know, you should immediately be concerned by what kind of information is being put online, is being put into these devices, just because they can be accessible, not just by the government, but um, by these criminals. I don't think necessarily that this specific hack um, is any sort of major red flag in terms of privacy. I think it's just continuing in a trend of things that we're aware of. So, I, you know, so if, you, if you look at this a bit, a bit deeper again, and, I, and I'm just very curious about this. I mean, when you, I, I saw a quote in one of the articles I read by Cindy Cohn, who's um, the Electronic Frontier Foundation's executive director. She was quoted as saying, the freedom to have a private conversation free from the worry that a hostile government, a rogue government agent, or a competitor, or a criminal are listening is central to a free society. Um, and so uh, even though our laws are not as strict as the ones in Europe, the Fourth Amendment does guarantee you know, the right to, to a reasonable search and seizures and more. So I'm just curious, just in terms of a pragmatic, philosophical sense, where this takes us. I mean, what, how, what, what does a society do to respond to this? Um, and, you know, I, and I'm not, you know, I'm not naive. I mean, I, the privacy has always been invaded since the beginning of complex society. But I just so. But what does it say to us about what we have to begin to wrestle with? Sean Gallagher, and then we'll go back to Jenna McLaughlin. Well, I think the first thing we have to do is we have to take a step back and reassess uh, whether, when and whether we should introduce technology into various parts of our lives. Uh, it, it, honestly, I mean, I'm as plugged in as anybody can possibly yeah, be. Yeah, exactly. Here, you I've are. I've been working in this industry forever, <laughs> right? And I 
take a step back every now and then and look at you know look at the things I'm about to buy and I say well do I really want something that's going to do that and put it on the internet and we have to sort of internalize sets of behaviors that we're not used to yet in terms of thinking about what the potential downside to the uh, the irrational exuberance we have about the internet sometimes is and think about you know what exactly was going on with when we post stuff on Facebook for example or when we put things on Twitter or when we buy a new device that connects to the internet for some useful purpose or some trivial purpose uh, what is the exact what is the level of security that comes along with that and what do we need to do to make that happen and for most people the level of detail you have to get into to make sure these things are secure is beyond their normal span of of, of knowledge. They don't have the they don't have the capability to spend that much time or that much energy on making these things work properly. I think that there has to be significant pressure on the companies that make these things to make them secure by default. You know, you have to make people sell products that are safe to use that won't cause financial or privacy harm to whoever buys them. And we have a problem in this country in that we have limited liability and for software. There's there's very li- there's zero liability law for software essentially out there. You can make software that's bad and if it and if somebody dies as a result of it, the maker of the software can't get sued over it. And that's a problem that has to be solved. We have to have some sort of a liability law or some sort of of internalization of the the liability that manufacturers of internet technology have when they introduce a technology or a product or a service that puts people at risk, whether that's to their privacy, to their finances, or to their livelihood. Jenna? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I I think that we as a society need to realize that people aren't going to really completely change their behavior necessarily, even if bad things continue to happen. Um, You know, if some kind of cyber attack takes down a power grid or gets us away from our money for a couple days, then people might start reconsidering. Um, But I think what really needs to happen, like Sean said, is that companies need to decide what level of protection that they're going to bake into what they create in order to protect uh, not only consumers, but also, you know, government customers. Um, So in in reality, I, I think that it's not going to be possible for a large number of people to say, you know, I actually want to check out of technology in these areas of my life. I think that they're just going to keep buying more and more of this stuff. I personally don't really want any of the smart devices. It's just not for me. I don't want an Alexa. I don't want any of those things in my life. Um, (laughs) They creep me out, and I honestly just kind of prefer doing those sorts of things on my own. I have always hated, like, voice-to-text things. It drives me crazy. Um, (laughs) But on the other hand, I, I have two cell phones. I have a computer. I have a tablet. I have all of those various devices that I'm constantly on. Um, and communicating with people and having sometimes sensitive conversations, sometimes personal conversations. Um, and I, I'm never going to be able to give that up, especially given uh, the area of work I do and also just the amount I want to be engaged in society on a digital level. Um, so I, I think that the next questions are more going to be about defense than retreating. There's been a very eye-opening, I think, in many ways for many people with the uh, WikiLeaks expose of MI5 and the CIA um, and what it says about the larger larger picture. You just heard Jenna McLaughlin 
uh, who uh, joined us, and she is the national security reporter for The Intercept. Good to have you with us, Jenna. And I'm really enjoying The Intercept, by the way. You're doing some great work there, really good work. Thank you so much for having me. Glad really. you're a reader. <laughs> <laughs> and Sean Gallagher uh, has joined us for many, many years. He's the IT editor for Ars Technica. Sean, always good to have you on the air. Thank you so much for joining us. Great, great to be with you again.